Breaking news. The COVID Twitter files have been released. And they're going to shock you. Also, at long last, what will the FBI not do? And the answer to that is going to shock you. Plus, the GOP was never our party. The Republican Party is a political machine that wants to run itself, not be run by ordinary people like you and me. This is something to keep in mind for everybody who says, what is it going to take for them to realize what we want? They don't care what you want. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm not here to sugarcoat things for you. It's a special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Let's get going. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you into the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 310 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show from Monday, December 26, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it is obvious. The last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022 the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid in the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right, let's get right into it. The Twitter files. Specifically, the COVID Twitter files. And this time, it's David Zweig. David Zweig over at the Free Press. First of all, some of the reactions to the COVID Twitter files. Just to give you an idea of how important and what a blockbuster this is, what a bombshell it is, Catherine Boyle over at American Dynamism has a tweet responding to the COVID Twitter files with this quote, What might this pandemic and its aftermath have looked like if there had been a more open debate about the origins of COVID, about lockdowns, about the true risks of COVID in kids, and much more. And her response, of all the mistakes Twitter made, this had the greatest effect on your family. Let's go to independent journalist Glenn Greenwald over at Substack about the COVID Twitter files. He says, this is one of the most important Twitter files thread yet, confirming what has long been clear The U.S. government pressured and cajoled big tech to ban any views that questioned or dissented from official decrees about COVID. Next, independent journalist Carol Markowitz 
who's also a columnist for the New York Post and Fox News, contributing editor to The Spectator, and contributing writer to the D.C. Examiner magazine. She says government and big tech work together to release only approved, often wrong, information about COVID. If you're still asking what's the big deal, I don't know what to tell you. I hope the emotion is coming through this microphone. Barry Weiss over at the Free Press, founder and editor of the Free Press, says Twitter suppressed true information from doctors and public health experts that was at odds with U.S. government policy. This is a story by David Zweig that impacted every American whether or not they have ever logged on to Twitter. The Free Press itself says, a review of Twitter internal files by guest writer David Zweig illuminates how Twitter executives suppressed COVID information, even from doctors and scientists, that conflicted with the official position of the CDC. Emily Yoff also at the Free Press and the Atlantic and Slate and New York Times and Politico. So probably not that much of a conservative, says Twitter, working with the federal government, banned and suppressed important information from scientists and others who disagreed with lockdowns, school closing, mask mandates, etc. David Zweig and the Free Press have the story. It's about to get real Really real up in here, y'all. Let me get live, fam. It's about to get really real. The free press for free people. It's thefp.com. And the article is entitled, How Twitter Rigged the COVID Debate. Subtitle, The Platform Suppressed True Information from Doctors and Public Health Experts That Was at Odds with U.S. Government Policy. And it's written by David Zweig. Zweig is spelled Z as in zebra, W-E-I-G as in girl. And there's a foreword here by the editor of the Free Press, Barry Weiss. She says, by the time reporter David Zweig got to the 10th floor conference room at Twitter headquarters on Market Street in San Francisco, The story of the Twitter files was already international news. Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Leighton Woodhouse, Abigail Schreier, Lee Fong, and I had revealed evidence of hidden blacklists of Twitter users, the way Twitter acted as a kind of FBI subsidiary, and how company executives rewrote the platform's policies on the fly to accommodate political bias and pressure. What we had yet to crack was the story of COVID. David has spent three years reporting on COVID, specifically the underlying science, or lack thereof, behind many of our nation's policies. For years, he had noticed and criticized a bias not only in the mainstream media's coverage of the pandemic, but also in the way it was presented on platforms like Twitter. We couldn't think of anyone better to tackle this story. Signed, B.W. for Barry Weiss. 
And that is the introduction. So David Zweig says, I'd always thought a primary job of the press was to be skeptical of power, especially the power of the government. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, I and so many others found that the legacy media had shown itself to largely operate as a messaging platform for our public health institutions. Those institutions operated in near total lockstep, in part by purging internal dissidents and discrediting outside experts. And he has links. Purging internal dissidents links to the Financial Times article, Scientists Who Quit FDA Criticize Plan for Widespread COVID Vaccine Boosters. Unfortunately, that's behind a paywall, but at least you know the headline for the Financial Times. The link to discrediting outside experts goes to the Wall Street Journal op-ed by the editorial board from December 21st, 2021, entitled How Fauci and Collins Shut Down COVID Debate. Subtitle, they worked with the media to trash the Great Barrington Declaration. So I think I probably ought to share that with you. That's behind a paywall, but I actually pay for the Wall Street Journal. So I I think I need to share this one with you. It's not that long. And it lays the foundation for what David Zweig is now reporting with the COVID Twitter files. So let's see what the Wall Street Journal editorial board said December 21st, 2021. In public, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins urge Americans to, quote, Follow the science, unquote. In private, the two sainted public health officials schemed to quash dissenting views from top scientists. That's the troubling but fair conclusion from emails obtained recently via the Freedom of Information Act by the American Institute for Economic Research. The tale unfolded in October 2020 after the launch of the Great Barrington Declaration, a statement by Harvard's Martin Kulldorff, Oxford's Sunetra Gupta, and Stanford's Jay Bhattacharya against blanket pandemic lockdowns. They favored a policy of what they called focused protection of high-risk populations such as the elderly or those with medical conditions. Thousands of scientists signed the declaration if they were able to learn about it. Wall Street Journal editorial board says, we tried to give it some elevation on these pages. That didn't please the lockdown consensus enforced by public health officials and the press. Dr. Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, until Sunday, that would have been the Sunday before December 21st, 2021, 
sent an email on October 8, 2020, to Dr. Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Francis Collins wrote, This proposal from the three fringe epidemiologists seems to be getting a lot of attention and even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Mike Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating public takedown of its premises. Is it underway? Now, these researchers weren't fringe, and neither was their opposition to quarantining society. But in the panic over the virus, these two voices of science used their authority to stigmatize dissenters and crush debate. A week after his email, Dr. Collins spoke to the Washington Post about the Great Barrington Declaration. He said, this is a fringe component of epidemiology. This is not mainstream science. It's dangerous. His message spread, and the alternative strategy was dismissed in most precincts. Dr. Fauci replied to Dr. Collins that the takedown was underway. An article in Wired, a tech news site, denied there was any scientific divide and argued lockdowns were a straw man. They weren't coming back. If only it were true. The next month, cases rose and restrictions returned. Dr. Fauci also emailed an article from The Nation, a left-wing magazine, and his staff sent him several more. The emails suggest a feedback loop. The media cited Dr. Fauci as an unquestionable authority, and Dr. Fauci got his talking points from the same media. Facebook censored mentions of the Great Barrington Declaration. This is how groupthink works. On CBS, November 2021, Dr. Fauci said Republicans who criticize him are, quote, really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous. Well, no, he isn't science. And it's also dangerous for scientific officials to mobilize to quash dissent, without which it's easy to make tragic mistakes. A scientific debate over pandemic policy was and is still in the public interest, especially during a once-in-a-century plague. Focused protection of nursing homes and other high-risk populations remains a policy road not taken during the pandemic. Perhaps a strategy wouldn't have prevailed if a debate had been allowed, but it isn't enough to repeat, as Dr. Collins did on Fox News Sunday, that Advocates are fringe epidemiologists who really did not have the credentials and that hundreds of thousands of people would have died if we had followed that strategy. More than 800,000 Americans have died as much of the country did follow the strategy of doctors Collins and Fauci, and that's not counting the other costs and lost livelihoods, shuttered businesses, untreated illnesses, mental illness from isolation and the incalculable anguish of seeing loved ones die alone without the chance for a family to say goodbye. Rather than try to manipulate 
public opinion. The job of health officials is to offer their best scientific advice. They shouldn't act like politicians or censors. And when they do, they squander the public's trust. And that is the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal from December 21st, 2021, the article entitled, How Fauci and Collins Shut Down COVID Debate. Now, why were we sharing that? Because David Zweig, over the free press, the FP.com, began his article, article entitled, How Twitter Rigged the COVID Debate, saying, I had always thought a primary job of the press was to be skeptical of power, especially the power of the government. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, I and so many others found that the legacy media had shown itself to largely operate as a messaging platform for our public health institutions. Those institutions operated in near total lockstep, in part by purging internal dissonance and, and here's the part that linked to the Wall Street Journal, discrediting outside experts. He said Twitter became an essential alternative. It was a place where those with public health expertise and perspectives at odds with official policy could air their views and where curious citizens could find such information. This often included other countries' responses to COVID that differed dramatically from our own, but it quickly became clear that Twitter also seemed to promote content that reinforced the establishment narrative and to suppress views and even scientific evidence that ran to the contrary. Was I imagining things? Was the pattern I and others witnessed proof of purposeful intent, an algorithm gone rogue, or something else? In other words, when it came to covid And the information shared on a service used by hundreds of millions of people, what exactly was being amplified and what was being banned or censored? So, when the free press asked if I would go to Twitter to peek behind the curtain, I took the first flight out of New York, and here's what I found. And we will get to what David Zweig found in mere moments But I tell you what, man, I wouldn't need that excuse to take the first flight out of New York. Oh, my goodness. I doubt that I will ever visit New York City again. But that that gentle listener is an entirely different subject. But I digress. As a matter of fact, I believe I'm up for a Peabody Award for 2022 in digressing. Now, look, if you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and then have them drive it to you no matter where you live in the continental USA. 
Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website. That puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. So clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent if you want to buy a car, truck, van, SUV. Order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door. No matter where you live, redriveryourway.com, you will be glad you did. I'll tell you what. We are so excited to have Mike Lindell and my pillow as sponsors of the Doc Washburn Show. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dream bed sheets. I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea slippers could feel this comfortable. As a matter of fact, I had to go out in the bitter cold late Thursday afternoon. It was like 15 degrees in the city I live in. Had to go grocery shopping for my wife. I wore my my slipper moccasins with no socks, and my feet did not get cold. So that was pretty amazing. We also love our MyPillow towel set. They are luxurious, and you can't get any better pillow than MyPillow. They're guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Mike Lindell's passion is to support American entrepreneurs and bring manufacturing back to our country. For years, people approached Mike with great products but had no way of marketing them. MyStore.com was created to give those people a voice and a platform to bring you their amazing products made right here in the USA. MyStore.com has all kinds of great deals on automotive products, bath and beauty, books and video, clothing, decor items, food and drink, garden and patio, health, home improvement, household essentials, kitchen and dining, personal care, sports and outdoors, toys and games, and a lot more. Plus, right now, you can save up to 50% on Giza Dream sheet sets. Get them for as little as $29.99 by using the promo code DWS. Save up to $90 on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins. Mark down to just $49.98 by using promo code DWS. And right now, get a six-piece MyPillow towel set for only $44.98 Again, just by using promo code DWS. We are honored to be affiliated with a great American patriot like Mike Lindell. Now, some of Mike's items during the holidays are marked down up to 80% off if you make sure to use promo code DWS. Now, remember, that promo code does not stand for Debbie Washerman Schultz. No, 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 no. 
DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com and MyStore.com. You are going to love your online shopping experience. All right. Now, that having been said, can I play you here a little clip of Dr. McCullough before we go on with the rest of the COVID Twitter files? It went something like this. The regulatory agencies, particularly the FDA, is off the rails at this point in time. Uh, they have, under emergency use authorization, uh, approved for use the bivalent boosters, which have never been tested in human beings. So we have no assurances that they work, and we have no assurances whatsoever they're safe. And for the vaccines broadly, we have no idea what's going to happen long term now that they're in the body. Studies suggest that the vaccines and the spike protein that's produced from them never leaves the human body. The deaths on a more probable than not basis that are occurring in someone who's taken a vaccine are due to the vaccine and the autopsy studies show it. It's alarming to save American lives now. These vaccines need to be pulled off the market. Dr. McCullough, speaking truth to power. And again, we go back to the article here of David Zweig over at the FP.com about the fact that Twitter and other big tech platforms suppressed the truth about this deadly disease. Now look, when, when, when they say hundreds of thousands of people died from COVID or millions of people died from COVID, I always remember in the back of my mind the financial incentive that hospitals had to chalk up deaths to COVID that weren't really from COVID. I get it. On the other hand, in 2021, we almost lost my son in his mid-20s, who definitely had COVID. I called my good friend, Dr. Daniel Dobby, who is our family doctor in Panama City, Florida. And he prescribed hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin for my son. And the CVS Pharmacy in Niceville, Florida, slow-walked the prescription 24 hours. By the time my son got his meds, he was gasping for air. When you've got COVID and you're gasping for air, you might not have much more time. You, you might just not make it. Because you have to keep breathing to stay alive. So I'm not one of those guys saying, hey, nobody really died from it. But I am one of those guys saying there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that a lot of the deaths chalked up to COVID were chalked up to COVID because of financial incentive. There are plenty of stories of families saying, no, no, Gramps didn't die of COVID. How come you're, no, we're not going to change the death certificate. Okay, great. Anyway, let me get back to the uh, the article here. David Zweig over the free press. The United States government pressured Twitter to elevate certain content and suppress other content about COVID-19 and the pandemic. Internal emails that I viewed at Twitter 
showed that both the Trump and Biden administrations directly pressed Twitter executives to moderate the platform's contents according to their wishes. Now, look, I'm not here to just say Democrats bad, Republicans good. If I may paraphrase what the great Michael Savage used to say when he was on the radio. There's plenty of bad to go around, okay? So if you're one of those people who says, oh, my goodness, Biden's evil, well, you're right, he is. But if you're one of those people who say Trump is without sin, he could do no wrong, he's never made a mistake, uh, then you're listening to the wrong show. Sorry. Did he want to do the right thing? Absolutely. Did he do a lot of great things? Absolutely. Do I wish he was still present because they stole the election from him? You better believe it. But he did make some mistakes. So buckle in. The article continues, At the onset of the pandemic, the Trump administration was especially concerned about panic buying and sought help from the tech companies to combat misinformation according to emails sent by Twitter employees in the wake of meetings with the White House. One area of so-called misinformation runs on grocery stores. Well, the trouble is that it wasn't misinformation. There actually were runs on goods. At this point, they link to a YouTube page from the Today Show. Panic buying, panic buying leaves empty shelves at supermarkets and stores. And this is from March 16th, 2020. So this is what the Trump administration wanted suppressed because they didn't want more of it. Well, I get it that you don't want supermarkets to be overrun, and yet... We still have the First Amendment, and if the federal government is trying to um, violate our First Amendment rights, that's a problem. This is two minutes and twenty, uh, two minutes and twelve seconds long from the Today Show, March sixteenth, twenty twenty. Worried customers have been snapping up everything in sight. Store shelves nationwide are dwindling or totally empty, like at this Target near Washington, D.C. I can't believe what people are doing inside. Shelves are empty. It's like we're going to out of nowhere. It really is unexplainable. The sudden push for preparedness has stores rushing to replenish. President Trump urging moderation from consumers. You don't have to buy so much. Take it easy. Just relax. Many stores now limiting the number of high-demand items customers can buy, like hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes. Kroger and Target increasing staff, while they and many other retailers like Wegmans, Safeway, Trader Joe's, Publix, and others are cutting store hours. They need the time to restock merchandise and to clean more thoroughly. 
this freezer section nearly bare. Here, produce gone. Cleaning products low. Bleach totally bought out. And we just tried to, you know, stock up on some of the dry goods throughout the week uh, and, uh, you know, try to get ourselves ready. Shoppers at this Florida Publix feeling lucky as they grabbed the last two packages of toilet paper. The rush for that product becoming a joke among some customers. I didn't buy any. I didn't even understand the toilet paper thing. What? While it's sold out just about everywhere, I did find plenty along with other essentials at smaller stores like this Dominican market in Orlando, Florida. In some places, the scarcity of staples such as pasta and soap causing chaos. Everyone, I think it's just an event of panic and, you know, scary for everyone. Others are trying to stay optimistic. Sometimes you have to look out for your fellow man. You can't just pick up everything and don't leave nothing for somebody else. Wow. So it was a real thing. It was a real thing, but the Trump administration was trying to dissuade Twitter from letting that story get out. Back to the article. It wasn't just Twitter. The meetings with the Trump White House were also attended by Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and others. When the Biden administration took over, its agenda for the American people can be summed up as be very afraid of COVID and do exactly what we say to stay safe. In July 2021, six months into Biden's term, then U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy released a 22-page advisory concerning what the World Health Organization referred to as an infodemic and called on social media platforms to do more to shut down supposed misinformation. Murphy said, we're asking them to step up. We can't wait longer for them to take aggressive action. That's the message the White House had already taken directly to Twitter executives in private channels. One of the Biden administration's first meeting requests was about COVID with a focus on what they called anti-vaxxer accounts. According to a meeting summary by Lauren Culbertson, Twitter's head of U.S. public policy, they were especially concerned about a guy named Alex Berenson, a journalist skeptical of lockdowns and mRNA vaccines who had hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. And here is a screenshot. Biden, one of the first meeting requests from the Biden White House was about COVID misinformation per regular process. Public policy took the meeting. Biden's staff focused on vaccines and high-profile anti-vaxxer accounts, including Alex Berenson. Now, If you're thinking Alex Berenson, boy, that guy sounds familiar. Where, where do I know that name from? Well, he's been on the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News Channel quite a number of times. The article continues. By the summer of 2021, the day after Surgeon General Murphy's memo, Biden announced publicly that social media companies were, quote, killing people, unquote, by allowing misinformation about vaccines. Just hours later, Twitter locked Alex Berenson out of his account 
and then permanently suspended him the next month. Berenson sued Twitter. He ultimately settled with the company and is now back on the platform. As part of the lawsuit, Twitter was compelled to provide certain internal communications. They revealed that the White House had directly met with Twitter employees and pressured them directly to take action on this one guy, Alex Berenson. The summary, well, you ought to sue them, too. The summary of meetings by Culbertson, emailed to colleagues in December 2022, adds new evidence of the White House's pressure campaign and illustrates how it tried to directly influence what content was allowed on Twitter. Culbertson wrote that the Biden team was very angry that Twitter had not been more aggressive in deplatforming multiple accounts. They wanted Twitter to do more. You know, that sounds like that sounds like fascism to me. You know, a lot of people don't realize that fascist has an actual definition. It, it, it doesn't mean I don't like you. That's how a lot of people use it. But it has an actual definition. Fascism is a system of government marked by centralization of authority under a dictator, a capitalist economy subject to stringent government controls, violent suppression of the opposition, and typically a policy of belligerent nationalism and racism. And if I may, if I may, let me just uh, amplify this a little bit. The part that says a capitalist economy subject to stringent governmental controls. Okay, you may still have private ownership of small businesses under fascism, but you're so tightly regulated that the government may as well own your business. The idea of private ownership of small businesses is a, it's, 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 uh, It's a mirage. It's a charade. It's a veneer. So, sometimes the word fascist actually applies. Okay? And in this case, I certainly certainly think it does. So, here's a screenshot. It says, the Biden team was not satisfied with Twitter's enforcement approach as they wanted Twitter to do more and to deplatform several accounts. Because of this dissatisfaction, we were asked to join several other calls. They were very angry in nature. Here's the presentation the Twitter team used. Now, Twitter executives did not fully capitulate to the Biden team's wishes. An extensive review of internal communications at the company revealed that employees often debated moderation cases in great detail and with more care for free speech than was shown by the government. Now, that's a surprise. Having been on the short end of the stick, having been on the receiving end of much shadow banning, much throttling, it's a surprise that Twitter didn't always do exactly what Biden wanted them to do. But, he says... 
Twitter did suppress views, and not just those of journalists like Alex Berenson. Many medical and public health professionals who expressed perspectives or even cited findings from accredited academic journals that conflicted with official positions were also targeted. As a result, legitimate findings and questions about our COVID policies and their consequences went missing. There were three serious problems with Twitter's process. The first, much of the content moderation on COVID, to say nothing of other contentious subjects, was conducted by bots trained on machine learning and AI. You know what that stands for, right? Artificial intelligence. David Zweig says, I spent hours discussing the systems with an engineer and with an executive who had been at the company for more than a year before Elon Musk's takeover. They explained the process in basic terms. Initially, the bots were fed information to train them on what to look for. But their searches would become more refined over time, both as they scanned the platform and as they were manually updated with additional chosen inputs. At least that was the premise about the bots. Though impressive in their engineering, the bots would prove too crude for such nuanced work. When you drag a digital trawler across a social media platform, you're not just catching cheap fish, you're going to snag dolphins along the way also. The second serious problem with Twitter's process. Contractors operating in places like the Philippines, were also moderating content. They were given decision trees to aid in their process, but tasking non-experts to adjudicate tweets on complex topics like myocarditis and the efficacy data of masks was destined for a significant error rate. The notion that remote workers sitting in distant cube farms on the other side of the globe were going to police medical information to this granular degree is absurd on its face. He says, embedded below is an example template deactivated after Elon Musk's arrival of the decision tree tool that contractors used. The contractor would run through a series of questions, each with a drop-down menu, ultimately guiding them to a predetermined conclusion. All right? Now, the third serious problem with Twitter's process, most importantly, the buck stopped with higher-level employees at Twitter. They chose the inputs for the bots and decision trees. They determined suspensions. And as is the case with all people in institutions, there was both individual and collective bias. At Twitter, COVID-related bias bent heavily toward establishment dogmas. Inevitably, dissident yet legitimate content was labeled as misinformation, and the accounts of doctors and others were suspended both for tweeting opinions and demonstrably true information. Oh, my goodness. And coming up momentarily, I'm going to give you some examples of that. But don't forget, also, coming up, 
what will the FBI not do? And the GOP was never our party. It is a political machine that wants to run itself, not be run by ordinary people like you and me. I've got to get into this for you on this edition of the Doc Washburn Show after we complete the COVID Twitter files. Boy, what better time than now to uh, remind you how I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom and pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created. with Regular folks like you and me in mind, one of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on the name Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you soon. SwitchToAmerica.com. It is my honor to tell you about the best-kept secret in American health care. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, psoriasis, migraines? Well, the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center may be able to help you, even if you're not in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. Had pretty bad migraines, too. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions allergies, vertigo, 
psoriasis, problems with your blood sugar, even migraines. Do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. If you're outside Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You. Pardon me. I'm always delighted to share with you news about America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies like Patriot Mobile that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers used. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you are shifting your support from the leftist progressive agenda of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. All you have to do is just go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless provider now also offers competitive business plans to suit companies of any size. So, if you're a conservative-owned business, tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars go to corporate woke agendas, switch to Patriot Mobile Business. You can learn more at business.patriotmobile.com or call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. And that's business.patriotmobile.com or just call 469-FREEDOM. All right, now let us pick up where we left off with the Twitter files. Specifically, the new Twitter files about the suppression of the truth on COVID that dropped Monday morning, December 26, 2022. And David Zweig is the new reporter. And we left off with him saying at Twitter, COVID-related bias bent heavily toward establishment dogmas. Inevitably, dissident yet legitimate content was labeled as misinformation, and the accounts of doctors and others were suspended both for tweeting opinions and demonstrably true information. Take, for example, Martin Kaldorf, an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School. Now, Dr. Kaldorf often tweeted views that odds with U.S. public health authorities and the American left, the political affiliation of nearly the entire staff at Twitter. So, 
He's got a screenshot of one such tweet from March 15th, 2021, regarding vaccination. So there's his Twitter profile, which goes by Endemic Equilibrium. And it says, Dr. Koldorf, do you think younger age groups and or people who already had the virus need to be vaccinated? I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I am vaccine hesitant about this one. It seems to be a religious mantra now that everyone must be vaccinated. And Dr. Koldorf responds, no, thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is as scientifically flawed as thinking that nobody should be vaccinated. COVID vaccines are important for older risk, for older high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. Okay, so that's March 15th, 2021. That's pretty early on because the COVID vaccines didn't start rolling out until December 2020, three months earlier. David Zweig continues here in his article. He says, internal emails show an intent to action by a Twitter moderator saying Dr. Koldorf's tweet violated the company's COVID-19 misinformation policy and claimed he shared false information, which, of course, I'm sure he didn't. And here's a screenshot of an email the name is, re, uh, is redacted, but it's addressed to COVID-19 misinfo and four more. Hi, team. Sending a heads up that we will take action on Martin Koldorf, a professor at Harvard Medical School, for violating our COVID-19 misinformation policy, specifically by sharing false information regarding the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines, which goes against CDC guidelines. Interesting. So, it has a screenshot of Martin Koldorf, Dr. Martin Koldorf's answer to the endemic equilibrium tweet that we just read to you. But David Zweig here in the article at the Free Press says, but Koldorf's statement was an expert's opinion, one that happened to be in line with vaccine policies in numerous other countries. That's fascinating. And he has a link to, what was that? The, I guess the German, a German paper. Nope. Danish Health Authority. Okay, he's got a link to uh, Danish Health Authority talking about uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And he also then has a link to, Norwegian Institute of Public Health. Oh, my goodness. So, he says, Kaldorf's statement was an expert's opinion, one that happened to be in line with vaccine policies in numerous other countries, yet it was deemed false information by Twitter moderators merely because it differed from CDC guidelines. After Twitter took action, Koldorf's tweet was slapped with a a label that said misleading. And all replies and likes were shut off, throttling the tweet's ability to be seen and shared by others, a core function 
of the platform. I wonder what they did to me. Because to quote the late, great Norm MacDonald, I'm just a guy. I'm not nearly as famous as some of these people, perhaps, and yet I was shadow banned. I was throttled. It was crazy. So Twitter put a label under Martin Kaldorf, Dr. Kaldorf's tweet, saying misleading. Learn why health officials recommend a vaccine for most people. Find out more. This tweet cannot be replied to, shared, or liked. David Zweig says, in my review of internal files, I found numerous instances of tweets about vaccines and pandemic policies labeled as misleading or taken out entirely, sometimes triggering account suspensions simply because they veered from CDC guidance or differed from establishment views. For example... A tweet by Kelly KGA, a self-proclaimed public health fact checker with more than 18,000 followers, was flagged as misleading and replies and liked disabled for showing that COVID was not the leading cause of death in children, even though the tweet cited the CDC's own data. And here's what the tweet said. What an excellent example of cherry picking. If you narrow it down to only the specific months you specify, which include the largest COVID wave seen across the world, and you ignore all non-disease deaths, and you ignore cancer, heart disease, sudden, sudden infant death syndrome, then COVID is leading. You know, if you ignore all the rest of it. Well, again... Twitter has the old label there, misleading. Learn why health officials consider COVID-19 vaccines safe for most people. This tweet cannot be replied to, shared, or liked. Even though what he did, or what she did, I'm not sure if Kelly's a guy or a girl, was print links to what the CDC actually said about Twitter not being the leading cause of death for children. David Zweig continues, internal records showed that a bot had flagged the tweet and that it had received many tattles, what the system amusingly called reports from users. That triggered a manual review by a human who, despite the tweet showing actual CDC data, nevertheless labeled it misleading. Tellingly, the tweet by Kelly KGA that was labeled misleading was a reply to a tweet that contained actual misinformation. So they got the screenshot of that tweet uh, from censored Gregory Travis, which says, as do I, here's some data. Since December 2021, COVID has been the leading cause of death from disease in children. And the Kelly KGA was like, nope, because here's the CDC official figures, and you're wrong. But Twitter says... Kelly KGA, citing the official CD, um, CDC figures, was misinformation. David Zweig continues over the free press saying, COVID has never been the leading cause of death from disease in children. Yet that tweet not only remains on this platform, it is without any sort of misleading label whether by humans or algorithms, content that was contrarian but true, 
and the people who conveyed that content were still subject to getting flagged and suppressed. Sometimes this was done covertly. As reported earlier by the Free Press, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a Stanford professor of health policy who argued for focused protection of the vulnerable and end to lockdowns was secretly put on a trends blacklist at Twitter. But many instances were public-facing. The author of the tweet embedded below is a physician who runs the Infectious Disease Ethics Twitter account. The tweet was labeled as misleading, even though it was referring to the results of a peer-reviewed study that found an association between the mRNA vaccines and cardiac arrests in young people in Israel. The Infectious Disease Ethics tweet says, Below, the first study I have seen showing that mRNA vaccines in young people aged 16 to 39 are associated with cardiac arrests, not just myocarditis. And he's got the different colors there on the graph for first vaccine dose, second vaccine dose, cardiac arrests, and COVID cases. And he links to um, an article from uh, nature.com. And, of course, Twitter says, misleading. Learn why health officials consider COVID-19 vaccines safe for most people. Find out more. This tweet can't be replied to, shared, or liked. And um, I got to tell you, this is bad stuff, y'all. Andrew Bostom, a physician in Rhode Island, was permanently suspended from Twitter after receiving multiple strikes for misinformation. One of his strikes was for a tweet referencing the results from a peer-reviewed study that found a deterioration in sperm concentration and total motile count and sperm donors following mRNA vaccination. All right, you're going to make me look up a word. I mean, no, because I don't know. Let me see here. Motile. What What on earth is that? Uh, let's see. Moving or having the power to move spontaneously of or relating to mental imagery that arises primarily from sensations of bodily movement and position rather than from visual or auditory sensations, exhibiting or capable of spontaneous movement. All right. All right. So there we go. Andrew Boston, Rhode Island physician, permanently suspended from Twitter, after receiving multiple strikes from misinformation, one of his strikes is for a tweet referencing the results from a peer-reviewed study that found a deterioration in sperm concentration and total motile count in sperm donors following an mRNA vaccination. And here is the screenshot of the tweet. Dr. Boston is saying, primary COVID-19 BNT162B mRNA vaccination temporarily impairs semen production and total motile count among semen donors with apparent rebound within five months, but no data on boostering effect. Does boostering yield another decline? Followed by what? So he's like, hey, is it still a problem if, you, if and when you get the booster shot? Twitter's logs revealed 
that an internal audit conducted by Twitter after Dr. Boston's attorney contacted the company found that only one of Dr. Boston's five violations was actually valid. Here's a screenshot from the internal audit. We have re-reviewed each of the strikes and collaborated with site integrity to validate our findings. Of the five violations, four of them are not invalid and are not in violation, and only this tweet is in violation for misinformation. As a result, we have now unsuspended the user and responded to their appeal to let them know that we have rescinded their suspension. You know, I'll bet this guy doesn't uh, appreciate being called they because he looks like one person. Anyway, it says, Also, we have left a pinned note on the account to ensure that before any enforcement action will be taken against the account, it will be subject to review by site integrity. We will also remove the annotations on the tweets we have marked as no violation. So the one tweet from Dr. Bostom found to still be in violation of Twitter policy cited data and drew a conclusion that was totally legitimate from said data. The problem was only that it was inconvenient to the public health establishment's narrative about the relative risks of flu versus COVID in children. So here's a screenshot of another tweet. U.S. and local Rhode Island data, influenza influenza is more lethal than COVID-19 in children, while COVID-19 vaccination causes serious morbidity than, than influenza vaccination in children. And homeboy's bringing the goods. He's got the receipts here. Got the screenshots. David Zwei continues, says, This tweet was flagged not only by a bot, but also manually by a human being, which goes a long way to illuminating both the algorithmic and the human bias at Twitter. Dr. Boston told David Zweig recently when he called to share with him his findings, he said, it seems grossly unfair. What's the remedy? What am I supposed to do? Now, his account was restored along with a number of others on Christmas Day. Wow, 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 wow. Another example of human bias run amok was the reaction to a particular tweet by then-President Trump. Many Trump tweets led to extensive internal debates at the company, and this one was no different. Now, this is from October 5th, 2020, in the afternoon. Well, it says 2.37 p.m. That's going to be Eastern time. So afternoon for most of the country, it would be 11.37 a.m. out on the West Coast, Washington State, Oregon, and California. President Trump says, I will be leaving the great Walter Reed Medical Center today at 6.30 p.m. Feeling really good? Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. Now, David Zweig says at the Free Press, in a surreal exchange, Jim Baker, at the time, Twitter's deputy general counsel asks why telling people to not be afraid wasn't a violation 
of Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policy. So he's thinking, if you tell people not to be afraid of COVID, you're violating our policy. And he's like, well, why isn't that a violation of our policy? In his reply, Yoel Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, had to explain that optimism was not necessarily misinformation. Oh, my goodness. you got to explain that to a guy that used to be a, a head honcho lawyer at the FBI and is now your head honcho lawyer and who should know the law? Yoel and Stacia, why isn't this tweet from the president a violation of our COVID-19 policy, especially the don't be afraid of COVID statement? Yoel responds, hey, Jim. Adding you to the main thread on the subject, in short, this tweet is a broad, optimistic statement. It doesn't incite people to do something harmful, nor does it recommend against taking precautions or following mask directives or other guidelines. It doesn't fall within the published scope of our policies. Curious whether you have a different read on it, though. Now, remember Kelly KGA with the CDC data tweet? Twitter's response to her in an exchange about why her tweet was labeled as misleading is clarifying. They say, we will prioritize review and labeling of content that could lead to increased exposure or transmission. David's why continues throughout the pandemic. Twitter repeatedly propped up the official government line that prioritizing mitigation over other concerns was the best approach to the pandemic. Information that challenged that view, for example, that pointed out the very low risk children faced from the virus, or that raised questions about vaccine safety or effectiveness, was subject to moderation and suppression. This isn't simply the story of how of the power of big tech or of the legacy press to shape our debate, though it is most certainly that. In the end... It is equally the story of children across the country who were prevented from attending school, especially kids from underprivileged backgrounds who are now miles behind their more well-off peers in math and English. And he links to a study there from, uh, from Harvard. It's a story of the people who died alone. It's a story of the small businesses that were forced to close down forever. It's even the story of the perpetually masked 20-year-olds in the heart of San Francisco for whom there has never been a return to normal. If Twitter had allowed the kind of open forum for debate that they claim to believe in, could any of this have turned out differently? I think so. I think so. And that's the end of the article. But um, it says, for more reporting from the free press on Twitter, start here. And there is an article from December 15th. This is fascinating, and it's not very long. It's called, well, the link is called Why We Went to Twitter. And then the article is actually entitled Our Reporting at Twitter. So maybe they, maybe they edited the article at some point. But Barry Weiss says, at dinner time on December 2nd, I received a text from Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla, founder of SpaceX, 
founder of The Boring Company, founder of Neuralink. On most days, the richest man in the world, possibly the richest man in history, and as of October, the owner of Twitter. Was I interested in looking at Twitter's archives, he asked, and how soon could I get to Twitter headquarters? Two hours later, I was on a flight from Los Angeles to San Francisco with free press writer Nellie Bowles and my three-month-old baby. In the days that followed, we, the journalist Matt Taibbi, investigative reporters connected to the free press, including Abigail Schreier, Michael Schellenberger, and Leighton Woodhouse, plus free press reporters Susie Weiss, Peter Savodnik, Olivia Rheingold, and Isaac Grafstein, camped out in a windowless, fluorescent-lit room at Twitter headquarters and began looking through the company's vast archive of internal communications. The only condition Elon Musk imposed was that we first publish our findings on Twitter itself. We did. She said, today in the free press, we are publishing versions of those stories that are not limited to 280-character chunks. She says, Twitter was founded in 2006. It's impossible to calculate how many emails and internal Slack messages and reports it has generated over the years. Looking for information about big subjects relevant to the public. The question of whether COVID-19 started with a leak from a laboratory in Wuhan, China, say, and how the platform suppressed or shaped the conversation around it is like trying to put together a 100,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. We also had to work through lawyers using e-discovery tools, software designed for lawyers to help them search huge amounts of information. So we entered search terms, mostly dates and names of former Twitter executives, And over many hours, files would pop up. We then stitched together a chronology of events and communications. We did not selectively retrieve or cherry-pick files with an eye towards servicing a a particular agenda. Our goal was simply to figure out what had happened at crucial moments in the history of the country and the company. As for Elon Musk's aim, what was his goal? and asking us to exhume the so-called Twitter files. And why did the man obsessed with outer space decide to spend $44 billion on a social media platform that has made most of us feel more claustrophobic? Those are much harder questions. She says, to hear Musk tell it, his motivation is obvious. It's about saving the world. Elon Musk said about the Babylon Bee, which had been banned from Twitter in March 2022, I'm not going to spend $44 billion to reinstate a satire blog. I did it because I was worried about the future of civilization. That's what he told us late one night. As far as Elon Musk sees things, quote, birth rates are plummeting, the thought police are gaining power, and even having an opinion is enough to be shunned. We are trending in a bad direction, unquote. He says he wants to transform Twitter from a social media platform distrusted and despised by at least half the country, and to one widely trusted by most Americans. To have it fulfill its highest mission, that of a digital town square where all ideas can be heard and the best will win out. He said, if there is one information source that breaks ranks, then I think it ultimately forces others not to have the same narrative. If even one organization competes hard for the truth, others will have to follow. But to win back that trust, Elon Musk figured, It would require being honest about what had, until very recently, been going on at the company he had just bought. The suppression of disfavored users, 
the curtailing of certain political views, the censorship of stories like the Hunter Biden laptop, and the extent to which the government had tried to influence such decisions. Elon Musk said in one of many conversations that took place over the course of a week, he said, we have a goal here, which is to clear the decks of any prior wrongdoing and move forward with a clean slate. He said, I'm sleeping at Twitter headquarters for a reason. This is a code red situation. He put it even more forcefully on Twitter where he said the company was a crime scene. And so he has been sleeping there on and off claiming a sofa. His two-year-old son was almost always nearby. Elon Musk, who is a native of South Africa, analogized the work of cleaning house at Twitter several times to a kind of truth and reconciliation commission, which is what they had in South Africa after Mandela took over from the old regime of apartheid. Anyway, she continues here, but what looks to some like truth and reconciliation can look to others like revenge. At one point after midnight, as Elon Musk showed off a closet of swag, including T-shirts left by the previous crew that said, Stay Woke, he joked, The barbarians have crashed through the gates and are pillaging the merch. Now remember, after Elon Musk made his offer to buy Twitter in April, he tried to get out of it in July arguing that the company had not been honest about about the percentage of fake users and bots on the site. But the company sued to force the deal, and he went ahead with it. Elon Musk estimates he paid at least twice what it was worth, but that he had to chew down this hairball, so to speak, which is to say he had to buy Twitter. The price tag isn't his only grievance. There's also the fact that the company, to hear him tell it, was not really a functioning company at all. He said when he took over the company, he found Twitter in disarray. Employees had unlimited vacation time and permanent work from home. The company had stopped doing performance reviews altogether, according to a longtime Twitter employee. Elon Musk said, as long as Twitter could just keep its head above water and be roughly cash flow break-even, then that's all they cared about. Elon Musk calls the Twitter he purchased a nonprofit. He said Twitter, as it existed, was not pursuing net earnings but social influence. He said this was fundamentally an activist organization. But since he took the, tw- the helm at Twitter, he has fired 80% of the staff. He has insisted that those not prepared to be extremely hardcore and work long hours at high intensity, show themselves out. Barry Weiss says, several engineers I spoke to had been working 18-hour days for the past month. They look like it. Elon Musk said, it's like if an aircraft was going in one direction and suddenly pulled a U-turn and hit the afterburners in the other direction. That's what happened to Twitter, he said, making a vroom noise and laughing. Barry Weiss continues from her December 15th article, article that came out 11 days ago. She says, in the two stories we're publishing today, Twitter's secret blacklist and why Twitter really banned Trump, you'll see evidence of Elon Musk's claim that at old Twitter, they were pressing the thumb hard in favor of the left. On the left, you could get away with death threats. On the right, you could get suspended for retweeting a Trump rally. Now, in one sense, 
That shouldn't be surprising. Twitter is in San Francisco. Its workforce is between 97 and 99% Democrat. If institutions are just people, well, of course, Twitter would more readily censor conservatives. What's surprising is how thoroughly Twitter misled the public, insisting that they did not suppress disfavored users and topics when they absolutely did. Elon Musk promises the future of Twitter will be a level playing field and that it will be consistent and transparent. He believes, as he says, the algorithm should be open source so people can critique it. Barry Weiss says it sounds very good. But if the story of old Twitter is about the biases and prejudices and power trips of the company's former overlords, the question is what Musk will now do with the powerful tools they created. What does it mean when the owner of Twitter tweets that his pronouns are prosecute Fauci? Lots of people thought it was hilarious. Many others thought it was horrifying. It's certainly not apolitical. Doesn't that take us back to where we were before? She says, just yesterday, news broke of Twitter banning Elon Jet, an account with half a million followers that tracked the movements of his plane. Elon Musk justified it by saying any account doxing real-time location info of anyone will be suspended as it is a physical safety violation and noted that a stalker recently climbed onto a car carrying his young son. Another answer could simply be, I own Twitter, my platform, my rules. No, no, that's where she's wrong. She doesn't get it. Okay, enough of that. Enough of that. I knew since she was a liberal, I was going to disagree with her eventually. Elon's doing the right thing. So that's good. Now, I got a couple more things I need to share with you. Uh, by the way, Dr. Naomi Wolf, who's the CEO of Daily Clout, and who wrote The Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19 and the War Against the Human. She's out there on Twitter saying 90 days after Pfizer's mRNA vaccine rollout, 275 patients reported 300 stroke-related events. 20% were fatal. 50% in the first two days following vaccination. Pfizer concluded, quote, this cumulative case review does not raise new safety issues, unquote. Well, now that there, that's fascinating. So I went to the link, and sure enough, the article over at Daily Clout Dateline, December 26, 2022, Report 50, Serious Stroke Adverse Events Following Pfizer COVID-19 mRNA Vaccination, links to, links to an actual report from Pfizer called Cumulative Analysis of Post-Authorization Adverse Event Reports of BNT162B2, which is their COVID vaccine, received through February 28, 2021. 
report prepared by Worldwide Safety of Pfizer. This information contained in this document is proprietary and confidential. Any disclosure, reproduction, distribution, or other dissemination of this information outside of Pfizer, its affiliates, its licensees, or regulatory agencies is strictly prohibited. And it goes on and on and on. But the point is, they make the case that a bunch of people died, and that was okay. They weren't going to let the public know. I hope someday somebody's held responsible. Now, we're all going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account of what we've done on this earth. No question about that. But um, it'd be nice if somebody was held accountable, like in a courtroom. You know what I'm saying? On this earth. Um, we need some Nuremberg trials, I believe. That's my opinion. You're, that is my, my opinion, and you're entitled to it. Okay, Victor Davis Hansen. Perhaps you've seen him on Fox News. He's brilliant. Has an article over at amgreatness.com called What Will the FBI Not Do? Subtitle, Who Watches the Watchers? He says, The FBI on Wednesday finally broke its silence and responded to the revelations on Twitter of close ties between the Bureau and the social media giant, ties that included efforts to suppress information and censor political speech. In a statement, the Bureau said, and I quote, The correspondence between the FBI and Twitter show nothing more than examples of our traditional, long-standing, and ongoing federal government and private sector engagements which involve numerous companies over multiple sectors and industries. As evidenced in the correspondence, the FBI provides critical information to the private sector in an effort to allow them to protect themselves and their customers. The men and women of the FBI work every day to protect the American public. It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency, unquote. Victor Davis Hansen says, Almost all of the FBI communique is untrue, except the phrase about the Bureau's engagements, which involve numerous companies over multiple sectors and, and, and industries. He says, Future disclosures will no doubt reveal similar FBI subcontracting with other social media concerns of Silicon Valley to stifle free expression and news deemed problematic to the FBI's agenda. The FBI did not merely engage in correspondence with Twitter to protect the company and its so-called customers. Instead, it effectively hired Twitter to suppress the free expression of some of its users as well as news stories deemed unhelpful to the Biden campaign and administration to the degree that the Bureau's requests sometimes even exceeded those of Twitter's own left-wing censors. Well, you know, when he says they hired Twitter, they paid him $3.5 million to censor stuff. Did you not hear about that the other day? Oh, yes, matter of public record. Victor Davis Hansen continues, The FBI did not wish to help Twitter to protect themselves given the Bureau's Twitter liaisons were often surprised at the FBI's bold requests to suppress the expression of those who had not violated Twitter's own admittedly biased terms of service and community standards. The FBI and its helpers on the left now reboot 
the same boilerplate about conspiracy theorists and misinformation smears used against anyone who rejected the FBI-fed Russian collusion hoax and the Bureau's peddling of the Russian disinformation lie to suppress accurate pre-election news about the authenticity of Hunter Biden's laptop. And he links to another article at amgreatness.com written by Roger Kimball, May 25th, 2019, entitled, Let's Call the Russian Collusion Hoax What It Really Is. And I would recommend it to you. Victor Davis Hansen continues, The FBI is now tragically in free fall. The public is at the point first of asking what improper or illegal behavior will the Bureau not pursue? And what, if anything, must be done to reform or save a once great but now discredited agency? Oh, but he's not through. He says, consider the last four directors, the public faces of the FBI for the last 22 years. Ex-director Robert Mueller testified before Congress that he simply would not or could not talk about the fraudulent Steele dossier. He claimed that it was not the catalyst for his special counsel investigation of Donald Trump's alleged ties with the Russians, when of course it was. Mueller also testified that he was not familiar with Fusion GPS, although Glenn Simpson's opposition research firm subsidized the dossier through various cutouts that led back to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the skullduggery and the FBI-subsidized dossier helped force the appointment of Mueller himself. While under congressional oath, Mueller's successor, James Comey, on some 245 occasions claimed that he could not remember, could not recall, or did not know when asked simple questions fundamental to his own involvement with the Russian collusion hoax. Comey, remember, memorialized a confidential conversation with President Trump on an FBI device and then used a third party to leak it to the New York Times. In his own words, the purpose was to force a special counsel appointment. The gambit worked, and his friend and predecessor Robert Mueller got the job. 20 months and $40 million later, Mueller's investigation tore the country apart but could find no evidence that Trump as Steele alleged, colluded with the Russians to throw the 2016 election. Comey also seems to have reassured the president that he was not the target of an ongoing FBI investigation when, in fact, Trump was the target of their investigation. Comey was never indicted for either misleading or lying to a congressional committee or leaking a document variously considered either confidential or classified. While under oath, his interim successor, Andrew McCabe, on a number of occasions, flat-out lied to federal investigators. Or, as the Office of the Inspector General put it, as detailed in this report, the OIG found that then-Deputy Director Andrew McCabe lacked candor, including under oath, that means he lied, on multiple occasions in connection with describing his role, in connection with the disclosure to the Wall Street Journal, and that his conduct violated FBI offense codes 2.5 and 2.6. The OIG also concluded that McCabe's disclosure of the existence of an ongoing investigation in the manner described in this report violated the FBI's 
and the department's media policy and constituted misconduct. Okay, that's a quote from the IG report. Victor Davis Hansen continues, McCabe purportedly believed Trump was working with the Russians as a veritable spy. A false accusation based entirely on the FBI's paid, incoherent, prevaricator Christopher Steele. And so, McCabe discussed with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein methods to have the president's conversations wiretapped via a Rosenstein-worn stealthy recording device, presumably without a warrant. Note the FBI ruined the lives of General Michael Flynn and... Carter Page with false allegations of criminal conduct or untruthful testimonies. Under current director Christopher Wray, the FBI has surveilled parents at school board meetings on the prompt of the National School Boards Association, whose president wrote Attorney General Merrick Garland alleging the bothersome parents upset over critical race indoctrination groups were supposedly violence-prone and veritable terrorists. Under Christopher Wray, the FBI staged the psychodramatic Mar-a-Lago raid on a former president's home. The FBI likely leaked the post-facto myths that the seized documents contained, quote, nuclear codes, unquote, or, quote, nuclear secrets, unquote. Under Christopher Wray, the FBI perfected the performance art humiliating public arrests of former White House officials or Biden administration opponents whether it was the nocturnal rousting of Project Veritas muckraker James O'Keefe in his underwear or the arrest with leg restraints of former White House advisor Peter Navarro at Reagan National Airport for misdemeanor contempt of Congress charge or the detention of Trump election lawyer John Eastman at a restaurant with his family and the confiscation of his phone, neither O'Keefe nor Eastman has yet been charged with any serious crimes. The FBI arguably interfered in two presidential elections and a presidential transition and possibly determinatively so. In 2016, James Comey announced that his investigation had found that Hillary Clinton had improperly, if not illegally, used her private email server to conduct official State Department business, some of it confidential and classified and likely intercepted by foreign governments. All of, that, all of that was a clear violation of federal statutes. Comey next, quite improperly, as a combined FBI investigator and a de facto federal prosecutor, deduced that such violations did not merit prosecution. Around the same time, the FBI had hired as a source the foreign national and political opposition hitman Christopher Steele. The FBI helped Steele to spread among the media his fraudulent dossier and used its unverified and false contents to win FISA warrants against U.S. citizens on the bogus charge of colluding with the Russians to throw the election to Donald Trump. By the FBI's own admission, it would not have obtained warrants to surveil Trump campaign associates without the use of Steele's dossier, which it also admittedly either knew was a fraud or could not corroborate. Again, such allegations in the dossier were false, and apparently the FBI soon knew they were bogus, since one of its own lawyers, the now-convicted felon Kevin Kleinsmith, found it necessary also to alter 
A court submitted document to feign incriminatory information. The FBI, on the prompt of lame duck members of the Obama Justice Department during a presidential transition, set up an entrapment ambush of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. It was an effort to lure Flynn into admitting to a violation of the Logan Act, a 223-year-old law that has led to only two indictments and zero convictions in 223 years. During the 2020 election, the FBI suppressed knowledge of its possession of Hunter Biden's laptop. Early on, the Bureau knew that the computer and its contents were authentic and yet kept its contents suppressed. Moreover, the FBI sought to contract out Twitter at roughly $3.5 million as a veritable subsidiary to suppress social media traffic about the laptop and speech the Bureau deemed improper. Again, although the FBI knew the laptop in its possession was likely genuine, it still sought to use Twitter employees to suppress pre-election mention of that reality. At the same time, Bureau officials remained mum when 51 former intelligence officials misled the country by claiming that the laptop had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Polls later revealed that had the public known the truth about the laptop, a significant number likely would have voted differently, perhaps enough to change the outcome of the election. Well, I mean, I don't know how to break it to Brother Hansen here, but they would have stolen it anyway. But great article, and he continues. The media, Twitter, Facebook, and former intelligence operatives were all following the FBI's own preliminary warning bulletin that foreign actors and cyber criminals likely to spread disinformation regarding 2020 election results. That was actually the name of the warning bulletin. Even as the Bureau knew the laptop in its possession was most certainly not Russian disinformation. And of course, the FBI had helped spread the Russian collusion hoax in 2016. In addition, the FBI issued phones of Agent Peter Strzok and Attorney Lisa Page, along with members of Robert Mueller's special counsel dream team, all under subpoena, had their data mysteriously wiped clean, purportedly by accident. Apparently, the paramours, Strzok and Page in particular, had much more to hide. Given how earlier they had frequently expressed their venom toward candidate Donald Trump, Strzok boasted to Page that the FBI in general, and Andrew McCabe in particular, had an insurance policy means of denying Trump the presidency. You remember this quote from a text that Strzok sent to Lisa Page? It said, I want to believe the path you threw out in Andy's office, that there's no way he gets elected, but I'm afraid we can't take the risk. It's like an insurance policy in the unlikely event you die before you're 40. Now, Victor Davis Hansen says here, when some of their embarrassing texts emerged, both were dismissed by the special counsel, but Mueller carefully did so by staggering struck and Page's departures and not immediately releasing the reasons for their firings or reassignments. To this day, the public has no idea what the FBI was doing on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol. How many FBI informants and agents were among the rioters and to what degree 
They knew in advance of the protests. The New York Times reporter, most acquainted with the January 6th riot, Matthew Rosenberg, dismissed the buffoonish violence as no big deal and scoffed. They were making this an organized thing that it wasn't. Rosenberg noted there were a ton of FBI informants among the people who attacked the Capitol. We have never been told anything about that ton, a topic of zero interest to the January 6th Select Committee and the U.S. House. What are the people to do about a federal law enforcement agency whose directors either repeatedly lie under oath or mislead or do not cooperate with congressional overseers? What should we do with a bureau that alters court documents, deceives the court with information the FBI had good reason to know was false and leaks records of confidential presidential conversations to the media to prompt the appointment of a special prosecutor, what should be done with a government agency that pays social media corporations to warp the dissemination of the news and suppress free expression and communications, or an agency that hires a foreign national to gather dirt on a presidential candidate and plots to ensure that there is no way, said presidential candidate, gets elected and destroys subpoenaed evidence. What, if anything, should the people do about a once-respected law enforcement agency that repeatedly smears its critics most recently as conspiracy theorists? The current FBI leadership under Christopher Wray and the tradition of recent FBI directors has stonewalled congressional overseers about FBI activity during the Trump and Biden administrations. In après-moi les déluge fashion, in other words, after me, the déluge, the Bureau acts as if it assumes the next Republican administration in office will remove the current hierarchy. And thus it assumes, for now, not cooperating with Republican investigations while Democrats hold control of the Senate and the White House for a brief while longer ensures exemption. Ray, most recently, cut short his Senate testimony on the pretext of an unspecified engagement which turns out to be flying out on the FBI Gulfstream jet to his vacation home. Yet the Bureau's lack of candor, contrition, and cooperation has only further alienated the public, especially traditional and conservative America, characteristically the chief source of support for the FBI. There have been all sorts of remedies proposed for the Bureau. The three reforms most commonly suggested include, number one, simply dissolve the FBI in the belief that its concentration of power in Washington has become uncontrollable and is increasingly put to partisan service, including but not limited to the warping of U.S. presidential elections. Number two, move the FBI headquarters out of the Washington, D.C. nexus, preferably in the age of Zoom, to a more convenient and central location in the United States, perhaps an urban site such as Salt Lake City, Denver, Kansas City, or Oklahoma City. Or number three, break up and decentralize the FBI and redistribute its various divisions to different departments to ensure that the power of its $11 billion budget and 35,000 employees are no longer aggregated and put in service of particular political agendas. The next two years are dangerous times for the FBI and the country. The House will soon likely begin 
investigations of the agency's improper behavior. Yet simultaneously, the Biden Justice Department will escalate its use of the Bureau as a partisan investigative service for political purposes. The FBI's former embattled high-ranking administrators who have been fired or forced to leave the agency, Andrew McCabe, James Comey, Peter Strzok, James Baker, Lisa Page, and others will continue to appear on the cable news stations and social media to inveigh against critics of the FBI, despite being all deeply involved in the Russian collusion hoax. Merrick Garland will continue to order the FBI to hound perceived enemies through surveillance and performance art arrests, and the people will only grow more convinced the Bureau has become like the Stasi in the old days of East Germany, their secret police, and cannot be reformed, but must be broken up, even as in extremists, a defiant and apologetic FBI will, as its latest communique shows, attack its critics. Oh, my goodness. He's bringing, he's bringing the heat. I'm telling you, this uh, Victor Davis Hanson is like uh, Nolan Ryan or Randy Johnson in the old days. By the way, an extremist means in extreme circumstances. Victor Davis Hanson wraps it up saying, we are left with a dilemma of qui custodiet ipsos custodis which is the Latin for who watches the watchers. Victor Davis Hanson, distinguished fellow of the Center for American Greatness and the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's an American military historian, columnist, and a former classics professor and scholar of ancient warfare. He's been a visiting professor at Hillsdale College since 2004, was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 07 by President George W. Bush. We're not going to hold that against him. Hans is also a farmer um, in Selma, California, and a critic of social trends related to farming and agrarianism. He's the author, most recently, of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, which is a brilliant book, by the way. The Case for Trump and the newly released The Dying Citizen. And this is Victor Davis Hanson over at amgreatness.com. The article is entitled, What Will the FBI Not Do? Now, I said when I opened the show today, we had one more thing to talk about. The GOP was never our party. It's a political machine that wants to run itself, not be run by ordinary people like you and me. And there's another article over at American Greatness by a guy named Dan Galerter called Trump Was a Mistake. Now, please do not get the idea that I got when I saw the, the title of the article thinking, wait a minute, Trump was a great president. He got a lot of good things done. The author of the article does not mean that it was a mistake for us to elect Donald Trump president. What he means is that the Republican establishment figured out pretty quickly Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to go the way we want it to go. So they thought he was a mistake, okay? I don't want you to tune out just because of the name of the article. Dan Glurter says, you'll notice a striking difference between election news coverage now and the lead-up to the 2016 presidential primaries. The mainstream media have have hardly 
breathed a word about Donald Trump except to say that he's not doing well in their polls, and so obviously voters must want him out of the race. Back when Trump was making his run for the nomination in 2015, the newspapers couldn't keep him off their front pages. He got hours of coverage on every news network every day. But that was back when most Republicans, myself included, did not consider Trump to be a serious candidate. The media decided he would be a wonderful candidate from the Democrats' perspective and selected him as most likely to lose to Hillary Clinton. So they gave him all the free coverage he could handle. Once the establishment realized that Trump was connecting with and inspiring millions of people, myself included, it was too late to stop him. But the papers and TV shows and social sites have learned their lesson this time around. People love hearing about Trump, and he loves talking. Media attention is his oxygen. So now they won't give him any. Prepare yourselves to hear hardly a whisper about Trump for the next year or two, except for portentous statements offered by pompous talking heads who will say he needs to drop out now for the good of the party. Whose party do you suppose they mean? Now, I want to say something to uh, the folks listening on the live stream. Usually a few minutes after two hours end, um, Podbean cuts us off. So I apologize in advance for that because I'll probably cut off the live stream uh, pretty quickly. Anyway, back to the article. At their convention way back in the year of 1900, the Republicans renominated President William McKinley to run for a second term as president. They also had a problem on their hands, a boisterous troublemaker with an exceptional ability to inspire crowds. His name was Teddy Roosevelt. Not Roosevelt, Roosevelt. My mother was born in 1932, my father was born in 1917, and they told me when I was a little boy that even though Teddy and FDR were second cousins, you pronounce Franklin Delano Roosevelt's name differently than you pronounce Teddy Roosevelt's last name. Anyway, his name was Teddy Roosevelt, a man more than one contemporary at the time would describe as the most remarkable man I ever met. But the Republican Party had never liked Roosevelt, principally because he was impossible to control. He had a penchant for saying exactly what he thought and doing exactly what he wanted, no matter whether it was in line with the approved party platform. In 1900, Roosevelt had been making a huge nuisance of himself as governor of New York, a position of massive importance in which, as he grew more and more popular, he became harder and harder to control. The Republicans, led by Thomas C. Platt, otherwise known as Boss Platt, wanted him out. Out of New York and out of power, period. So they hatched the perfect plan, nominated him for vice president where he couldn't do anything. You know what? Roosevelt took the bait. The temptation of being a top man in Washington, D.C. was too great for him to resist, even though he knew he'd have no real power. And when McKinley won the election, the political bosses were doubly delighted. They had the White House, and they had managed to move Teddy Roosevelt 
from the vital role of New York governor to the totally impotent role of vice president. Now, the vice presidency at the turn of the 20th century, over 120 years ago, was a political graveyard where politicians were sent to be gently eased out of power forever. We had not yet arrived at the modern tradition of having vice presidents generally rise to the presidency, or at least to the nomination. A vice president wasn't even guaranteed to be nominated as a running mate for the second term of the president he had served. McKinley's first vice president was a guy named Garrett Hobart, although he had a particularly good reason for not getting a second term. He died in office of a heart attack. Teddy Roosevelt's political career was considered over when he went to Washington as vice president after the Republican victory of 1900, and it would have stayed that way if not for a freak twist of fate In September 1901, President William McKinley became the third American president to be assassinated. Roosevelt was elevated from obscurity to the office he most desired and was best suited to fill. The political bosses realized they had made a mistake, but it was too late. Their mistake haunted them through three presidential terms, two of Teddy Roosevelt's terms and one of William Howard Taft's terms. Well, he only had one. And then, after Taft's first term, things got really bad. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be president again. He thought Taft was doing a mediocre job, and he argued with a certain logic that he had never really had the two terms to which an American president was traditionally entitled because he had only been elected president once His first term, remember, had merely been the completion of McKinley's second term because McKinley was assassinated. But the Republican Party hated Teddy Roosevelt even more by 1912, even if the voters adored him. So they renominated Taft against the popular consensus. In response, Teddy Roosevelt founded a third party, the infamous Bull Moose Party. This split the Republican vote, though in the process... Teddy got more votes than Taft. The only time in history that one of the two main parties finished in third place in a presidential election. Now, this handed the presidency to the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, one of the most destructive men of the 20th century and the first academic to be elected president. Wilson never would have stood a chance had the Republican nomination gone to Teddy Roosevelt. He was elected with a mere 41% of the vote, an historic low. But from the Republican perspective, it was better to lose the presidential race and have a Democrat in power with whom they could work, one who could play the game and be part of the machine, than it was to have someone who couldn't be controlled. They never again made the mistake of nominating a man who wasn't under their thumb. Well, at least not until 2016. So remember, and y'all, this is crucial, this is key, remember The GOP isn't really our party. It never was. That is a central truth that the Trump phenomenon has exposed or exposed anew. It is a political machine, just like the Democrat Party, and it wants to run itself, not be run by ordinary people like you and me. Trump's nomination the first time around from the GOP's perspective, 
was a huge mistake, just as Teddy Roosevelt's nomination had been a huge mistake, and they have no intention of repeating that kind of mistake. The GOP and the Democrats and the media are all agreed on one central point, and that is this, that Trump cannot become president again. All these power groups' motivations are different, but their interests are aligned, and the stakes are practically existential. Keep the story of the 1900 Republican Convention in mind, too, when you think of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's a huge success in Florida and is the only governor standing up to the federal government in any meaningful way. What could be better than to seduce him away from that role with a promise of the presidency? Kill two birds with one stone and kill America, too, while you're at it. Trump was a huge mistake. It was the biggest mistake machine politicians had made in over a century. The success of Trump's presidency dealt establishment politicians a heavy blow. A second Trump term might kill them, and they know it. So be prepared to hear nothing about Trump's candidacy, nothing about his massive rallies, nothing about the unwavering enthusiasm of his supporters. Be prepared to hear only one thing, that the people don't want him. But don't believe it. Remember which people are doing the talking. Man, oh man, oh man, what a great article there. That is from uh, Dan Galerter. He's a columnist for American Greatness, living in Florida. The article is entitled, Trump was a mistake, and it clearly does not mean that Trump was a mistake for you, for me, for America. No, 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 no. The claim is that the Republican establishment realizes, oh, my goodness, what have we done? You know what I'm saying? That's the deal with that. All right, now, having said that, it's about that time. Okay, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership. In the middle of the USA, the police and freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. All right, we've got a, uh, a two-part tweet of the day here. The first is from U.S. Attorney Tom Renz about the um, the origin of COVID. And it is a press conference. And attached to it is a, um, a fact sheet from August 13th, 2021, from the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And that is uh, part of the uh, Department of Defense. So let's hear what this attorney, Tom Renz, has to say on the Doc Washburn Show. 
We the people are dying in massive numbers. 6.5 million. 6.5 million globally. That's criminal charges. Did Anthony Fauci lie about gain-of-function uh, gain work? Absolutely, in my opinion, he did. And how about criminal charges? We're going we're gonna to go after Bannon for contempt because he didn't bother to show up to a farce hearing. But we're going to let Fauci lie to Congress about something that is consequential enough to result in 6 million deaths? Can anyone explain this to me? We, the people of the United States, should be outraged. Instead of pitting a war against people who are Christians, people who believe in the United States, people who want our country to succeed, maybe we should look at the people who are responsible for the, one of the greatest pandemics in human history and who have resu that's resulted in millions of deaths worldwide. I pray that every country in the world, every country, Send it to the U.S. Ask us, when are we going to investigate the crooks? The U.S. government didn't do this, but there were people in the U.S. government who did. There are criminals involved who I believe were responsible for this, who were negligent in their work. They did it. The Chinese Communist Party was involved in this. Anthony Fauci appears to be involved in this. Peter Daszak appears to be involved in this. Let's hold them accountable. It's time for criminal charges, criminal investigations. Jail, here we go. Is this the same uh, Peter Daszak they sent to investigate? Yes, this is Peter Daszak who uh, was, was out there. Uh, we sent him to China to decide whether or not this was a lab leak or natural origin. Peter Daszak, whose company built this in the lab with the Chinese Communist Party in Wuhan, China, was sent to China to investigate himself. You got that? That's Attorney Thomas Renz. Give it a press conference there on December 22nd. Now, uh, second part of Tweet of the Day is from Alice N. Glass, and she has a link to an article from the New York Post. She says, so they funded $40 million into this project minimum. Who paid that money out? Trump tried to stop it. And the New York Post article from... July 1st, 2021 is entitled Pentagon gave millions to EcoHealth Alliance for weapons research program. Now, why are we just hearing about that? Look, I can't catch everything the first time around. Yeah. But when I do catch it, I'm going I'm to give it to you. It's my duty to share it with you. The Defense Department doled out millions of dollars to the same nonprofit that funneled federal grant money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to bat coronavirus research, with most of the Pentagon money going toward murky research on countering biological weapons. New York City-based EcoHealth Alliance has already come under scrutiny for redirecting funds from the National Institutes of Health to the Chinese lab, from where many believe COVID-19 leaked to set up the worst pandemic in a century. But federal spending data shows that EcoHealth has a long and profitable relationship with the Pentagon, receiving $42 million in awards since fiscal year 2008. That's more than three times the next largest amount awarded to it by any other agency over the same time period, $13.17 million for the Department of Health and Human Services. Of the $42 million, 
Over $37.5 million was awarded to EcoHealth Alliance by the, De- the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, which describes its mission as to protect the United States and its allies by enabling the DOD and international partners to detect, deter, and defeat weapons of mass destruction and threat networks. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And people should be in prison. But will they be? Is anybody going to be held accountable? Well, brother, I don't know. But I do know. I appreciate my buddy Mitch Ward and the crew at RedRiverYourWay.com for sponsoring each tweet of the day. You've been listening to episode 310 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. Well, that's the way it is. Monday, December 26, 2022.